0: 2.46 million people in England have osteoarthritis of the hip, and many of those go on to eventually have a hip replacement, which is now widely considered one of the most commonly performed and successful operations in the world. I'm Jessamy Baganol, clinical fellow with the BMJ, and in this podcast I'm joined with Nick Aresti, a specialist registrar in trauma and orthopaedic surgery, and one of the authors of a clinical update on hip osteoarthritis, recently published on the BMJ.com. In a linked podcast, I've talked to Nick Nicholas, a patient who has his osteoarthritis, to give us his perspective. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Nice to be here.
0: Your article is really interesting about sort of the symptoms that people first get and this kind of gory ache, which is something that Nick Nicholas mentioned yesterday. Are there sort of other symptoms that are very typical for osteoarthritis
1: or? the the pain is the, the most typical symptom um generally in, in arthritis the defining feature is the pain on using the hip um, so as the disease progresses the pain will intensify walking short distances will cause the pain and then the typical patient will then ultimately get rest and night pain although that may be a, a feature from far earlier patients then start developing other symptoms as a result of it so because of the imbalance, leg length discrepancies, other joints might then start aching. They might get lower back pain, um, and so it's really important to differentiate where that type of where, where the pain is coming from and, and isolating the joint in question.
0: And is it the kind of pain that sort of that, that gets worse with use or that gets better with use? I mean, like the more that you use it. We were hearing from Nick yesterday that he does a very kind of active job and standing up a lot. Is that Is that going to make it better or is that going to make it worse?
1: So in osteoarthritis normally people get worse as they use their hip so the 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 normal typical patient will generally get worse as the day goes on so the more they're standing the more they're walking around and particularly climbing stairs the pain will intensify if pain is a feature of um, in the early morning or when they wake up then you should start thinking about comorbidities such as inflammatory diseases and, and rheumatoid arthritis.
0: And in terms of Nick, yesterday was talking about his range of movement got quite quickly sort of severely limited. Is that is that typical? Is that sort of as the, as it, as your symptoms get worse and range of movement gets limit, more limited or?
1: yeah so again as as the disease progresses, movement gets worse, whether or not that's due to stiffness and pain uh, and muscle contractions or or a mechanical block because of been degeneration osteophyte formation um it, it, it's a bit of a mixed picture but but the stiffness does does get worse as the disease progresses. Different movements are affected, but it's it's the internal rotation which literature would say is the most sensitive um movement to go.
0: And are there things that patients can do to kind of improve that or make that better? I mean, like, you know, exercises like yoga and things that we hear. Are, they, are there things, are there, is there evidence around that? Or?
1: There is, to be honest with you, there is, there is good evidence around physiotherapy and muscle strengthening. With regard to yoga and Pilates, I'm not aware of any published literature suggesting that it helps. Um, hip arthritis but to be perfectly honest with you that doesn't mean that it doesn't work so if patients find relief from yoga pilates swimming you know whatever they find benefit from uh, I'd, I'd encourage it
0: yeah and so besides sort of the conservative measures that patients can take like you know physiotherapy and muscle strength when they sort of decide to start taking pain relief how does that process normally happen is that something that they just buy over the counter or are they going to their GPs to get it? Or what's the kind of normal process of that?
1: Most people tend to start taking analgesia themselves. Um, the I think it's better if it's done via the GP purely so that they can be monitored for uh, toxicity from anti-inflammatories and also just to monitor how their pain develops and then you know have a, have a longer discussion with the patient about treatment options. The the question of analgesia. Um, or I say, the NICE are considering their recommendations on which types of analgesia to use, particularly paracetamol, because there are questions about its efficacy in hip arthritis. Um, so the the, um, the advice on arthritis in general is due to change from mice uh, and they may well change what they recommend around the use of paracetamol. Um, but my recommendation would be that if patients start developing hip pain, to start simple analgesia on their own. And if they find that it, the pain doesn't subside or it continues, they should seek Um, advice from their GP who can then monitor them and and advise appropriately.
0: Right and that process obviously is very different for each patient but are are, are there patients that will just remain on analgesics for sort of several years, 10 years without any progression or do things tend to progress quite kind of quickly?
1: In in my experience it's very hard to say. There's lots of different patterns that we see. A lot of the time I find patients who develop quite acute hip arthritis, they'll use the analgesia to get over the initial pain and they'll almost just live with it um, and then take PRN analgesia um, as required. Then you know, you, you get other types of patients who who stay permanently on, on medication. And I think those are the types of patients who, who are often very difficult to manage because managing their side effect profile versus the, you know, trying our hardest not to operate on them um, is often quite tough. I think every case just has to be looked at on an individual basis um, and taken into account the patient's values, what their job is, what their hobbies are, um, before making a decision about about how to treat them and, and when to proceed to surgery.
0: Yeah, and in your article you talk briefly about kind of shared decision-making tables and things like that for patients. Is that something that more and more orthopedic surgeons are using, or is it something that's still quite sort of early early on in its development
1: I, I think the the concepts of shared decision making tools are it, it's been around for for a while now there's, there's lots of published articles showing their efficacy i I 'm not sure how many orthopedic units are actually physically using tools, but the whole The notion of shared decision-making in terms of giving a patient a set of options letting them go home and and google it uh, And have a look and read or what it says online I I think that's definitely on the rise and I think in the past five or six years there's definitely been a swing to You know a a surgeon recommending saying this is what you need to these are your options go and think about it and let us know Um, I, I think in units where surgeons are comfortable doing that and and they've got enough time and and so on, then that's great. Where there isn't, there are these tools available that um, people should really be using in this day and age. That's
0: great. Thanks, Nick. And we heard yesterday from Nick Nicholas about his um, hip injection and how that gave him an awful lot of benefit for about three weeks, but then the pain came back. Is that fairly typical? And are you allowed to have... Several hip injections. What's the kind of? How how do patients balance that that particular stage?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question actually because I think mainly hip injections aren't aren't used as often or or given as often as knee injections because they're difficult. Yeah, you can't just uh, do it on a on a catch and a GP surgery. It has to be done by a radiograph under ultrasound guidance or or using an image intensifier. Um. Their, their clinical benefit, it, to be honest with you, it varies unit to unit. And um, I've been to several hospitals which we use using purely as diagnostic tools. So if a patient comes in with with hip pain, they've got some degeneration and changes on their X-ray, but the clinician is not certain. They'll inject the hip, and then if that works in, you know, it's hip arthritis, they'll need a hip replacement and um, other units will use it for patients who come in in severe pain who have had, a, have had an exacerbation of their arthritis, you treat them with a hip injection and gets them over the initial pain and, and then they go back to what their normal level of pain was. So th- there are various uses of them. The question of how many, how often, um, it, it's one which I don't think has been fully answered in the literature. There were some papers, um, ten or. 15 years ago, which suggested that increased number of injections um, increases the risk of infection post arthroplasty, but that has been found not to be true in other papers. So I think the literature is still a little bit vague about when to use them, how often to use them. Um, and you know, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier on. I think it's we have to take everything on a patient by patient basis and, 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 and see what you know the benefits and risks
0: so it, is what you're saying that it's very sort of user dependent i.e. that the, it depends on the skill of the orthopaedic surgeon in where he's injecting it or is it just that some people respond to them differently?
1: No, so, yeah, no, it's not so much of the, the skill of the of the injector it's just that to, to give an injection you have to have some form of imaging so it just makes it harder to do so it has to be in theatre um, the patient often has to be sedated because it's a little bit more painful whereas with with knee injections, it can just be done in a clinic once a decision's been made. So it just makes the whole process a little bit harder. Um, you know, right. so if, if, so, if someone comes to visit you and you decide on a hip injection, it might be two three weeks delay before you can give it. And if by that point they're they're over that spike in hip pain, they might not need it anymore. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not so much user dependent; it's more just the logistics of it make it a little bit harder.
0: Yeah. And um, is there ever any risk? to having a hip injection? I mean, are there are things that you have to warn patients about. Is there a downside to having it?
1: There, there are, of course, risks um, as with everything we do. The risk of, in, of infection is is minuscule, you know, as long as it's done in a, in a sterile environment. Um, there are some case reports of, uh, of significantly increased pain post-injection. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm... I haven't seen anywhere any literature which would suggest risk factors for that um, and I think you know it's only been several case reports I don't think it's, it's anything that's particularly common but yeah you know it, it's, a pre, it's a pretty safe intervention you know it's not as though taking anti-inflammatories and paracetamol is without risks and I wouldn't think that an injection is, is far more riskier than that yeah
0: And so Nick was saying that he had his injection, it it took about three weeks, it was better for three weeks and then he had difficulty putting on his socks and that was kind of his sort of red light or green light that he should go for for surgery. Is that what you find with patients that they they just sort of tips the balance and suddenly it's affecting their life so much that they sort of have to have surgery?
1: Yeah exactly, I think um, you know we we all are aware of the fact that the longer you leave it before you you have a hip replacement, technically the better the outcome because you'll need less revisions as you get older but on the flip side, what we don't often talk about with patients is the fact that if your life is significantly affected, then it's worth having an operation you know hip replacements are are one of the most successful operations that you know we we can possibly do on patients um, and it can significantly improve life so if you're if your patients have got to the point where they literally can't put their socks on, can't walk down the road to buy a pint of milk, then, then it's a it's a great intervention. Um, and again, I think it, it depends on, on the patient. So Nick so had a very busy, demanding job. He was going from place to place work, um, a very active lifestyle. So his threshold was of having an intervention was much lower, whereas if you have an 80-year-old lady who doesn't really move around much, you know, she, she might not have the same point at which you'd want to operate.
0: And are there limits about who we can operate on? I mean do we operate on 90, 95 year olds now for sort of symptom relief or, or do we? is it thought to be too big an operation for that sort of thing?
1: Yeah so I think my last uh, job I remember assisting in hippopotam with someone who was in their late 90s who physiologically was very well. Um, so there is a risk that we, we sometimes draw the line and say anybody over a, a certain age or anybody with certain comorbidities shouldn't have an operation. Um, but, but again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If that person is absolutely miserable, has no quality of life whatsoever, it, it really is their decision about whether they want to take the risk. Um, yeah. and, and I think good units won't, won't practice risk-averse um orthopaedics that you know if a patient is in a position where they want an operation it's going to dramatically increase their lifestyle and they're willing to take the risk you know as long as it's within reason it should happen in my mind.
0: And so if we're doing all of these procedures on such a varied sort of demographic and varied patients with different levels of comorbidities is it now standard or common to have the procedure carried out with a spinal block and sedation, or is this sort of is what you is what normally happens if the patients fit and well, then you do it under general, and then the patients that maybe have more comorbidities or are older, you do it with a spinal block and sedation, or or is it just surgeon preference?
1: Um, that, that's a that's a good question. Um, the literature and all the enhanced recovery programs would suggest that a spinal. It's far better, so the patient recovers quicker, is on their feet quicker, and therefore has less complications. Most units now will do a spinal as standard, and if either a spinal is not possible or the patient is just too frightened and and requests a general, it will be the default having a spinal. Um, And, you know, I I think anaesthetists will confirm that. In most cases, spinal anaesthetics are better for the patient anyway, so it's a win-win. And I know in yeah. fact a lot, a lot of units who do high volumes hip replacement of I'm sorry of, of fraction neck will will only do spinals.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? So could you talk to us a bit more about the enhanced recovery program? Because Nick was saying how you know quickly he recovered, and it does seem that there's a very good process in place for getting patients up and about after their operation.
1: Yeah, sure. It's, so enhanced recovery has been around for what, about ten years or so now, and um, the the kind of ethos behind it was to get patients um, up and about and out of hospital quicker than um, yeah. You know, and I think you know a lot of it was to do with cost saving, but actually patients do better themselves afterwards. So what a typical enhanced recovery program will have is almost a pre um, area where they'll come for, to, you know, they're, they're often called bone scores where somebody will explain to them what the hip replacement or knee replacement is going to entail, their likely recovery time, so the patient has a better understanding of exactly what they're going to face. Yeah. The next, the next step would be during the actual procedure itself, good units who have well-established enhanced recovery programs will have standardized protocols for everything. So the, the anesthetists all use the same um, drugs the same implants are used and every system is streamlined so that it's more effective and efficient mm. and then similarly patients then enter a postdoc rehabilitation process um, so Nick um, actually works in in Hillingdon Mount Vernon trusts and now Mount Vernon they've got a fantastic um, enhanced recovery program so at the moment patients are wheeled out of theatre there's a physiotherapist there waiting to start moving their limbs um, and the, the data we would suggest or if that doesn't suggest it, it tells us that a good enhanced recovery program leads to better patient outcomes and really importantly much quicker discharges as well.
0: And can that sometimes be a tough process and my experience from general surgery often suggests that that's not what patients are expecting or or do you think it is about that preoperative stage where you have to really tell them that you're going to be yeah. getting them out of bed the next day and
1: yeah and um, I think not enough emphasis can be put on that um so if if a patient comes in knowing that they're having their you know so your hip replacement in the morning and then in the evening or the next morning they'll be walking around if they're aware of that i I think they're more likely to do it um so yeah i mean, the, the other i think easy thing with orthopedics compared to general surgery is that most operations are exactly the same you know patients feel exactly the same the pathology is exactly the same so, because everything can be standardized so easily, it just makes repetition easy.
0: And so, most patients are discharged on, on what day after the operation in in sort of enhanced, if, it, if you have a completely enhanced recovery, smooth process?
1: Well, I would say a good, fit patient on day three um, can go home, I've seen patients go home, you know, sometimes even after a day or two days, um, but I would say three, four days would be the average length of stay. In fact, some some units for, for knee replacements are sending patients home the same day.
0: That's amazing, isn't it?
1: Mm, yeah, it's changed from how it was a few years ago when people would stay for a week to two weeks.
0: Yeah, two weeks or something. And Nick was mentioning that the stockings to avoid from basis were sort of the worst things about the whole process for him because they were uncomfortable to wear mm-hmm.
1: yeah. is that
0: something you find other patients complain about a lot and you know are they always necessary do they do patients have to wear them
1: yeah of course um they've you know got I won't bore you with the with the details around how effective they can be but it it is almost amusing walking around post wards and seeing everybody having pulled their socks halfway down, which actually makes them more likely to develop DVTs rather than having wearing them properly. Um, but, I, you know, it, it's one of those things where I would always say, if a patient's complaining about their DVT stockings, then operation's probably gone pretty well the, and, the, and they're doing okay.
0: And in terms of sort of the long-term outcomes of hip. How long are people keeping their hips for now? Is it sort of 10 years or 15 years, the majority?
1: So, um, thankfully, the registries have got really good data, not just in the UK, but uh, around the world. Our National joint Registry data suggests that the probability of needing a revision um, at 11 years post-operative is 6.2%. So that's pretty low. Um, Obviously, the longer... the the later you have a hip replacement, the less likely you are to need to have a revised. And there was a really um, interesting article that came out of uh, New Zealand. um, Somebody looked in their registry and they found that if you have a hip replacement at the age of 48, a patient is twice as likely to survive um, their implant, um, i.e. they're likely to have to have it revised. If they have the hip replacement at 62, then the patient's statistically more likely to outlast their implant. Um, and I think the in-between it was at 58. So at the age of 58, your odds on, And um, so you could have, you know, in terms of having revised or surviving your implant. Um, so I think that, that data really suggests that if you're looking at having a hip replacement in your 60s, borderline on 70s, chances are you'll outlive your implant and not need a revision. Whereas if you're looking at having a hip replacement in your 40s, 50s, you'll probably need to have it revised at some point.
0: And hip revisions are they fairly straightforward operations, or are your options significantly limited once you get to the revision stage?
1: Technically, the operations are plentiful. There's all sorts of really fun implants that you can use to um, to revise someone's hip. they yeah, they're, you know, you get some which are very straightforward and, and take you no time, and some are very complex and 12-hour operation, and. I think the, the important thing to bear in mind is that when patients get to the point where they need to have their hips revised because of um, loosening or because of a periprosthetic fracture, the patient themselves tend to be more frail, have higher comorbidities, and tend to be quite unwell. And that's what, right. for me, makes the whole situation more complex. So technically, yeah, that can be challenging, but to be honest, most hip revision surgeons enjoy revising a hip. Um, but it, it's the patient's frailty and comorbid state that often makes it quite challenging.
0: Yeah. So do you, are the outcomes worse or does the same thing happen? I mean, do they, when you have a revision, is it still sort of enhanced recovery if possible and trying to get them back on their feet or is it sort of almost damage control?
1: No, it's, it's the same thing. So there's a, there's a whole range of reasons why you're... Going to revise somebody, but if you have someone who, who has a simple case of uh, a, a loose component and needs to have it revised, it, it, it's exactly the same process as it would be for a primary hip. You know, the, the whole, you know, fundamentals of patient understanding what's going to happen, getting them in and out of surgery as quickly as possible, and on their feet, um, using standardised processes. The, the same applies really.
0: I'm Jessamy Baganal and you've been listening to Nick Oresti talk about their hip article hip osteoarthritis which is now available on the bmj.com in a linked podcast I've talked to Nick Nicholas a patient who has hip osteoarthritis to give us his perspective